In this episode, a Greek goddess kills the dinosaurs, Emily smuggles 400 bananas on a plane, and we're live from Caveat in New York City. Welcome to Fax Machine. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the co-hosts of Fax Machine, Noah Guyberson and Emily Custer. And please welcome our special guest, Connecticut's premier high school physics and chemistry teacher, Rich That's all for you, Rich. That's all for me? That's all for you. Oh, just like every one of my classes every day. (laughs) When I'm out sick. (laughs) This is fantastic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first live episode of Fax Machine. Yeah. My name is Rob Farley. I'm the co-host with Noah. Hello. Emily. Hiya. And our special guest chemist, Rich Fizzler. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. You know, I live in Connecticut. I don't get to New York often, but I do get here periodically. Uh, Rich, we really want to thank you for coming, uh, especially on a school night. Oh, yeah. Uh, but you are our first guest ever, and depending on how this goes, possibly not the last. So <laughs> <Let's hope not. laughs> this is going to be good. Yeah. All right, so welcome everyone to Caveat. Thank you for coming on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, this week, we trivia swapping scientists are in our element as we share our facts based on the theme, the periodic table of elements. Uh, We chose this theme in honor of the UN naming 2019, the International Year of the Periodic Table, and by the end of the night, we guarantee you could all get at least a four on your AP Chemistry exam. (laughs) Uh, The four of us will take turns presenting and discussing three elementary facts, and then I'll wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz, which you've all gotten a taste of already, uh, loosely inspired by the theme. So before we get started, since today's show is about the periodic table, I'll spare just a moment to describe it all to you. Uh, even though you've all chosen to come to a bar on a Monday night to listen to a chemistry show, so I don't think you really need any description uh, of the periodic table. But the periodic table is a graphic representation of all the different discrete atoms that have ever existed. Atoms are grouped into columns, which tell us about the number of electrons they have in their outer shell. And because electrons are fairly important, that number dictates some of the physical properties of the column-sharing elements. The table was conceived when Dmitry Mendeleev grouped all of the known elements by physical properties and noticed that there was a recurring pattern, or periodicity, to the masses in these groups. Arranging them in this way, Mendeleev and others were able to predict missing elements. Uh, The table we see today is a far more advanced version than the original scribblings of a genius anarchist Russian chemist, Uh, but it's also woefully incomplete in its picture of how these atoms actually interact and behave. Um, So it is really a starting point from which many chemists and physicists have decided to commit their entire life to understanding the natural world. These are their stories. (laughs) Dun, dun. (laughs) With no further ado, we're going to jump right in. I'll hand it off to Noah, who's got our first fact. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for that that rousing round of applause. Uh, (laughs) Most people are here for Emily. I know that. Um, Come to accept it. So this week, I learned that deposits of the element iridium in the Earth's crust gave rise to two theories. One, that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs, and two, that our sun has a companion star named Nemesis, named after the Greek goddess of vengeance. Damn. (laughs) I should probably start by saying that one of those is more mainstream than the other. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, but first, let's talk a little bit about iridium. So iridium was discovered in 1803 by a guy named Smithson Tennant, who was studying impurities in natural platinum. Uh, Tennant named iridium for the Greek goddess Iris, who is the goddess of the rainbow, uh, because of the striking and diverse colors of the salts it made when it was mixed with other compounds. So there aren't honestly a ton of uses for iridium, uh, but among them are a possible use in cancer therapy in which a radioactive isotope of iridium uh, is targeted to cancer cells, which can help kill tumors. And because of its very high melting temperature, it has also been used in the casings around the radioactive plutonium power sources of spacecraft such as Voyager, Cassini, Galileo, and New Horizons. So one interesting thing about Voyager, uh, personal story, my uh, wife's father, Roy Caparola, designed the power supply for the Voyager, uh, the Voyager space probe. And, um, he oh, talked cool. about it his whole life, and uh, <laughs> he passed. Never let you forget. No, he passed away. <laughs> he passed away a couple months ago at age of 92. But I do have all of the uh, all of the thermocouple uh, test devices that RCA had at the time to before they created the. So if anybody's from the Smithsonian and wants them, let me know. But I, you know, so I was surprised to find out that uh, probably the most widespread use of iridium was in the nibs of fountain pens. Um, and many of which to this day still include the word iridium on them. I don't know if anybody has ever seen a fountain pen now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> but they, they, a lot of them say iridium on it. So is, is the iridium, like that's there to strengthen the tip? Or that makes yeah, it better? Yeah, iridium has like a really, it's like a very, very strong metal. So you're saying that iridium is what makes the pen mightier than the sword? Do <laughs> <laughs> you think we could do this without Rob? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder more so every day. <laughs> so one brief thing I found out about iridium um, is uh, had to do with the metric system. And the French, thank you to the French for a lot of things, cheese and wine and <coughs> the meter. They originated the meter in the 1790s as one ten millionth of the distance from the equator to the North Pole. And, um, but realistically, it, it was represented by t the distance between two marks on an iron bar kept in Paris. And uh, in 1875, they upgraded that bar to 90% platinum and 10% iridium alloy because it was very stable. So just out of curiosity out there, um, how many countries in the world don't use the metric system? What do you think? Yeah, you guys are really smart. Yeah. <laughs> Three. Three countries. The United States, Liberia, and Myanmar, which most of you know is Burma. It's a good so, crowd um, to yeah, be Yeah, it's a good crowd. Um, <laughs> So just really quick about the metric system, because we love the metric system. I thought, well, the United States doesn't use a metric system, but Congress actually passed amendments to something called the Metric Conversion Act in 1988, designating the metric system as the preferred system of weights and measures for the United States and commerce. And they required federal agencies to use the metric system of measurement in its procurements, grants, and other business-related activities by the end of 1992. However, caveat for business, which the government is apt to do, they did not make it required, they made it voluntary. And so I guess by some estimates, only about 30% of products manufactured by American companies have gone metric. So as of this podcast, the U.S. has officially and legally recognized a metric system. If you go all the way back to about 145 years, but business has not adopted it, so go figure. I guess if you give some people an inch, they'll take 1.6 kilometers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so right. anyway, in 1977, uh, there was a team led by father and son scientific duo, Luis and uh, Walter Alvarez, who were studying sedimentary layers at sites all around the world. And they found that there's this thin band of rock known as the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary that contained a concentration of iridium that was hundreds of thousands of times greater than the normal uh, for the Earth's crust. And iridium is incredibly rare in the Earth's crust. 
And the reason that is is that it has this property. It's known as a siderophile, which I had to look up three or four times. And <laughs> it means that it, it, it really likes to be around iron. So when the Earth was still molten, it was just like a big molten ball of rock and metal, all of the, of the um, what, what are we doing? Uh, iridium. <laughs> <laughs> that was genuine. Um, <laughs> all of the iridium bound to the iron, and because it's also very dense, it went down, and all of it's bound up in the Earth's core. So there's vanishingly small amounts of it in the crust. And so... Because they saw this extraordinarily large amount of it in a certain layer of the geological record, the Alvarez's surmised that this left only one likely source of iridium, and that's asteroids, which Ooh. have a, a lot of iridium in them. And so further work then identified the impact of a massive asteroid that is roughly twice the size of Mount Everest and about the size of the Martian moon Phobos that around 66 million years ago hit where Mexico is today on the Yucatan Peninsula. This was no ordinary impact. This collision would have released the same amount of energy as 100 million megatons of TNT. Um, that's another measurement people probably don't get. Um, <laughs> it's over a billion times the energy of the atomic bombs that were dropped in World War II. Whoa. All in one spot. <laughs> um, and so soon after, more and more of these iridium signatures and geological record were found to correspond with asteroid impacts throughout Earth's history. And fast forwarding to 1984, University of Chicago paleontologist David Raup and John Saposky, published in the journal uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS. PNAS! Nice. This is our hey, favorite uh, journal uh, in this podcast, because we always get to say PNAS. And <laughs> PNAS is always trying to increase circulation, right? <laughs> I mean... Rich, what, what are the odds your students hear this? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I just hope the authors don't let it go to their head. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> uh, so basically, in this paper, they observed this pattern that every 26 to 27 million years or so, there's a mass extinction. Um, and also, these could correlate with the known asteroid impacts. And so, this apparently cyclical pattern could be caused by, or at least according to them, could be caused by extraterrestrial influences such as asteroids. So, our friend we talked about before, Luis Alvarez, Alvarez Sr., hated this idea. And he just, the reason is he, he couldn't see any mechanism that it could account for it, and he was very, very vocal about it. And on one occasion in particular, he had been sent one of these cyclic asteroid impact papers to review, and he was absolutely not thrilled about it. And so he stormed into the office of his grad student. At the time, grad students had offices. <laughs> it feels really anachronistic, but uh, his, this grad student and later fellow Berkeley physics professor, Richard Muller, and started shouting about it at him. And, he, and so... And I just want to jump in, like... If you've ever submitted a paper and wondered why reviewer number two is just awful, it's because they're all the Richard Alvarez's of the world who just <laughs> like Alvarez, see, oh, whatever. No. <laughs> but they're just like, what is, ah, just run down the hall telling how bad your paper is. Like, I can totally <laughs> picture this happening, but. So, so it, um, one thing we were doing uh, this year in planning for classes last year is we, we also teach computer science and we were um, developing a, uh, a project where kids would um, develop a program where they model near-Earth or uh, near-Earth objects. Would they crash into the moon? Would they crash into the Earth? And they can actually show the path of these objects. So we, we kind of looked up how many near-Earth objects there are out in space, and it was scary to us. And then we drank a lot, and we found out that there was, you know, over 20,000 near-Earth objects out there, and over 900 of them that are over 1,000 meters long, or half a mile to, uh, you know, about close enough. 
And the next really close one will approach in about 2025, and we didn't really want to learn that. Um, if you look <laughs> at the pictures of that, we said, well, we, if you don't want to know, don't look. It's kind of like when you go into your parents' room at night and you <laughs> hear those noises, you just keep walking. So close your eyes and don't know that things are out there coming. We've always got the Armageddon plan. We the know Armageddon that works. Armageddon plan. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. So, um, so Richard Mueller uh, right now is getting screamed at by Luis Alvarez. And so Mueller recounts this story in his autobiography where he writes that he uh, was basically just messing with his PI, which is always a recipe for success. And so as Alvarez was just screaming at him, he kept suggesting these absurd possibilities uh, just to egg him on and make him even angrier. And so finally, Mueller just spitballing was like, okay, okay, maybe the source of these asteroids is a hypothetical companion star to the sun. If it swings about 0.5 light years away from the Earth, it might divert the huge cloud of asteroids in sort of the deep outer solar system called the Oort cloud, um, and might throw some of them towards Earth in this sort of cycle that corresponds with its orbit. And Alvarez stopped talking for a moment and goes, yeah, okay, I guess that could work. Um, and then thus satisfied walked out of the room. But Mueller couldn't get it out of his head, and he spent the next 20 years trying to find it. And he and many others did not or have not yet, if you're optimistic. However, he <laughs> insists that it's out there and says he wrote a book called uh, Nemesis, The Death Star. Um, <laughs> and he's, it's gone out of print, but he has written on, like, online that uh, he's waiting for Nemesis to be found, and then he'll put it back into print. And we're like, all right. Just like <laughs> M more interesting to me that due to its proposed role in driving periodic mass extinctions, um, it was given the name Nemesis. And so we use that word a fair amount in our society to just mean, like, somebody's worst enemy. But the word nemesis actually comes from the name of the Greek goddess of retribution, and specifically retribution against those who succumb to hubris. So probably the most famous story about nemesis in Greek mythology is the one in which she causes a vain man named Narcissus uh, to fall in love with his own reflection in a pond, which results in him sitting there staring at his own face until he wastes away and actually becomes the flower Narcissus, which is basically just a lily, I think, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like a daffodil. Oh, daffodil, right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, this is, this is the origin of the word narcissist, which means, well, I mean, obviously, we all know we have a podcast, but... Um, <laughs> we know all too well. Um, actually, an interesting point, too, there's an even more common Greek loan word that we get from the story of Narcissus, uh, and that's echo. That yeah. rings a bell. So, as you just said, nar <laughs> hey. uh, Narcissus <laughs> so deeply and hopelessly and unrequitedly in love with his own reflection that he turned to a flower, but there was another victim, and that victim was Echo. So, she was a nymph who spotted Narcissus while traipsing through the forest one day, as nymphs were wont to do, apparently, and fell in love with him immediately, apparently also a common issue at the time. <laughs> so, he spurned her affections and attempts at meet-cutes, which consisted of him hearing her footsteps and yelling, who's there? And her yelling back, who's there? Which honestly, I get that. Flirting is hard. <laughs> 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 and that just basically left her doomed to drift through the forest, heartbroken, until there was nothing left but her lovelorn vocalizations. It's so very sad. So do you know why her name was Echo? No. So, so there's a story right, bef right <laughs> before that part of the story. There's uh, basically, uh, the nymphs are all like beautiful women. And uh, Zeus, we'll just euphemistically say he was known to cavort with them. Um, and so basically what happens in this is that Zeus like slipped away from Mount Olympus and went down to hang out with the nymphs. Uh, and uh, Hera, his wife, knew about it and was like, listen, this is not going to fly. So she <laughs> follows him down there and Zeus knows she's coming and tells one of the nymphs whose name was Echo. Um, listen, Echo, you are known for your amazing conversational skills, for your beautiful singing voice. Keep my wife busy while I get out of here, like sneak out the back of the nymph forest. I don't know. Um, 
<laughs> but so she does this. Echo's like game for it. So she's just talking Hera's ear off. Hera's like, excuse me, I need to get by. No, she like wants to talk more and more. It's just on and on and on about the weather. Finally, Hera figures out what's going on and she basically goes like, okay, you've been using your like greatest talent to stop me from catching my husband. Uh, so I'm going to curse you with basically not being able to carry on a conversation. Uh, so that, that's what, yeah. for the gift yeah. of gab. Exactly. Man. So she could only repeat the last thing anyone else said. Well, I will say, so I looked a little bit into uh, the version of this story from Ovid's Metamorphoses, and the dialogue between her and Narcissus to me suggests that she was still a little bit savvy with the limited speech that she could <laughs> do. Um, so there are a few quotes from this that are a little suggestive, at least by today's standards, but at one point, Narcissus, beckoning the mysterious Echo to show herself, says, oh, let us come together, to which she replies, oh, let us come, <laughs> come together. together. <laughs> 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 Additionally, when she actually does appear before him and hugs him out of excitement, he cried, and this is a little sad, uh, take off your hands, you shall not fold your arms around me, better death than such a one should ever caress me, to which she replied, caress me, <laughs> which is sad, but you know, he's just not that into you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've got to uh. start closing up. Okay, so <laughs> but, but it's this association with poetic justice that moved Muller and others to name this hypothetical star after her, essentially <laughs> suggesting that these periodic impacts were like cosmic retribution for the temerity of living things to grow too quickly or to get too powerful, and as the comparison applies, to threaten to become too much like the gods themselves. But in our search for the greatest threats to our planet, We'd do well to take a cue from Nemesis's famous victim, Narcissus, and take a good hard look in the mirror. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if the geological strata coinciding with Iridium have historically implied mass extinction by asteroid, the current mass extinction, one of our own making, will be recorded by future geologists by the Iridium that we have left behind and our fountain pen nibs in old meter sticks. So as I mentioned before, Iridium is named after Iris, which is the Greek goddess of the rainbow. And it reminds me of the Old Testament story about my biblical namesake, Noah, in which God promises there will be no more apocalyptic floods that wipe out all of humanity by putting a rainbow in the sky. And according to that story, whenever we see a rainbow, it's a reminder of that time when the world was wiped clean and began anew. And given that history, I just think it's well, history. <laughs> Excuse me. Given that <laughs> a historical story, um, <laughs> sorry, um, Freudian slip there. I just think that it's interesting that when we we look back into history through the geological record, whenever we see the namesake of a rainbow, wherever we see iridium, we know that it must have seemed to whatever organisms were present at the time that it was the end of the world. But you know, life uh, finds a way. <laughs> yeah. All right, so moving on to our next fact. Uh, audience, you guys ready to go to fact number two after that? Yeah. All right. So, so going once, we're neon. Going twice, we're xenon. We're moving on. All right. <laughs> he insisted on putting that in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they didn't like it at all. <laughs> all right. So, Emily, you've got our next fact. But what do you got But they all reacted. It. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. It's a long night. <laughs> Rich, you and me, we got this. <laughs> All right, Emily, what have you got for us for our second fact tonight? All right, so this week I learned that phosphorus, an element crucial to life as we know it, has a complicated imprint on human history since it was discovered by an alchemist trying to extract gold from pee. Yeah. Mm. So this story begins with Henning Brand, a German chemist who lived in Hamburg in the 17th century. And although he's now remembered for his contributions to alchemy, in a way that might be relatable to the median age group represented in, in this audience, he spent a good part of his life just trying to find himself. 
You know, I, I don't think been I'm, there. I don't think Feel I'm part of the median age group, but I can definitely relate. To <laughs> <laughs> so as a young man, he was a soldier in the Thirty Years' War, and then an apprentice to a glassmaker, and then he tried his hand at medicine, but according to an account that described him as an uncouth physician who knew not a word of Latin, <laughs> that wasn't quite the right fit either. But eventually, he found his dream job in alchemy. So, like his peers in alchemical pursuit, he was determined to achieve chrysopia, a fancy word for the conversion of common base metals, like iron or lead, into noble metals, the most precious of these being gold. And the alchemists were specifically on the hunt for the elusive essential ingredient that would enable chrysopia, and they thought that it would also be an elixir for immortality and a panacea for all the diseases. So their expectations were pretty damn high. <laughs> and they called this ingredient the Philosopher's Stone. Oh. Hey, or ring a bell, you, Harry you mean, Potter fans. You mean the Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> Well, <laughs> please, we deal in the UK version here. Come on. Oh, is gosh. That, is, the is the Philosopher's Stone, like, is Nic was Nicholas Flamel, like, a real person? He's a great yeah. wizard. He was actually rumored in those times to have discovered the Philosopher's Stone. So he the, was a real in, alchemist. In the Harry Potter books, Nicholas Flamel is supposed to be the real-life Nicholas Flamel well, who just lived a really no, long time. No, Harry Potter is based on a true story. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, this, this is Sorry. fax machine, so you can take our word for it. Yeah. My, my memory wipe charm is wearing off now. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so fans of Harry Potter will also recognize this symbol, which was a symbol for the Philosopher's Stone to medieval alchemists, uh, and was meant to represent the four elements of matter as they were understood at that time. So... Hennig, armed with a likely overinflated sense of self-confidence and his late wife's dowry, set out to find <laughs> the Philosopher's Stone. It's a really dangerous combination, those two. <laughs> and the hypothesis underlying his search was informed by two critical observations. You guys ready for this? All right. Number one, gold is yellow. Right? We can all agree. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Checks out. Secondly, urine is also yellow. Yeah. What? <laughs> Therefore, the <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky, if you're, stay hydrated, my friends. Therefore, as I imagine he cried aloud in one of those stereotypical eureka moments. A urethra moment? <laughs> okay. So if there are any more, any more pee jokes, I should just hold them? Yeah. <laughs> Is that how this goes? No, it's not no. healthy, man. You gotta let them flow. Just let them flow? Let okay. Flow. Right. Huh. Well, I'm getting so. to that age, so. As I imagine he cried aloud, there's gold in that there urine. <laughs> so he searched for gold in that there urine by collecting 50 to 60 buckets of the stuff and letting it sit until, as described in a protocol by Robert Hooke, it putrefied and bred worms. Mm. Oh. This was then followed by rounds of boiling, infiltration, and isolating precipitates. And by the end of this lengthy and malodorous process, he didn't find any gold. Shocker. But instead, in 1669, <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> he isolated a white waxy substance whose seemingly otherworldly glow inspired him to call it the ancient Greek word for the planet Venus. Phosphorus. And it's appropriate too the Greek for the or the Greek translation, I should say, of phosphorus is light bearer, while its equivalent term in Latin is Lucifer, as it's assumed various roles and connotations throughout history, with applications ranging from commercial fertilizers to matches to chemical warfare. As a biologist, I prefer to consider phosphorus through the lens of those hopeful alchemists seeking the philosopher's stone, namely as a source of life and immortality. So, phosphorus is an essential building block to all life on Earth as we know it. Specifically, there we go, when it's bound to oxygen as a phosphate ion. But phosphate ions lurk in the twisted backbones of DNA and RNA, over there, uh, the hydrophilic surfaces of the plasma membrane, and in the energy storing molecule, ATP. 
So, does everyone know the story of how DNA was discovered? Yes. Who, who discovered it? No. No. You <laughs> discovered the structure. DNA, the molecule, was discovered in 1869. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? In a German kitchen. In a castle in Tübingen. Thank you, audience member. Uh, Very nice. Actually, do you want to just... You can come up and do my whole thing. (laughs) You got it. You got it down. No, uh, so it was discovered by this guy, Friedrich Meischer, who um, basically, in the most disgusting experiment of all time, he got, like, a bunch of local hospitals to give them their... I'm sorry about this. Pus-soaked bandages, um, and he alternated pouring over alcohol and uh, and just like basically hydrochloric acid over and over and over again. And what was left with this like weird gray, goopy substance, and uh, that was DNA. But at the time, biologists thought that the only thing that mattered was protein. They thought that like heredity was sort of uh, like encoded in proteins. They thought that proteins did everything interesting in the cell. Um, so basically, when he did this chemical analysis on this thing, he discovered and discovered that it was mainly phosphorus, or at least significant proportion of it was phosphorus. The scientific community basically responded with a resounding, hmm, gross. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so DNA was mostly um, disregarded until much later, until Rosalind Franklin. We got to bring it but, back to Rosalind. But, right. but you know, actually, there was another group at the time that was researching this, and they were, they were going to publish first. And then this guy, he, he, he released his paper on pussy DNA, and... They interviewed the other group and said what happened, and they said he was too phosphorus. <laughs> <laughs> I love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that our cells, and hence ourselves, can't Ooh. function without phosphorus is amazing, considering that it's actually pretty rare. So compared to the other biologically essential elements, such as hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, and sulfur, phosphorus is pretty low on the list in abundance, both on Earth and in the solar system. And this scarcity is partly due to where it comes from. So a 2013 study applying telescope spectroscopy to determine the chemical composition of a supernova remnant called Cassiopeia A found that phosphorus is made when stars explode. Yeah, so to roughly paraphrase Carl Sagan, where is he? There he is. <laughs> we're not just made of any star stuff. We're made of supernovae, right? Nice. That's pretty Aww. sick. So these celestial phosphorus gases then get trapped in rap- rocky objects, the likes of which formed our planet and later bombarded it as meteorites. And meteorite-derived phosphorus, uh, which exists as a mineral called schreibersite, is actually of great interest to astrobiologists. So since life as we know it requires phosphorus, detection of schreibersite in the neighborhood of forming planetary bodies by the future James Webb Telescope could point us to life at other corners of our universe. But back here on Earth, phosphorus exists in its phosphate form as apatite, the mineral, not your hunger, uh, which is mined in places like Morocco, China, and even the U.S., or collected from decomposing organic matter like bone ash or guano. Now, the discovery of phosphorus in guano, which is just a fancy word for bird and bat poo, actually created a guano harvesting industry in the 19th century, as well as one of the silliest pieces of U.S. legislation that I've ever come across the Guano Islands Act of 1856. So, to summarize it in a maximally ridiculous but still completely accurate way, it allows any citizen to claim an uninhabited, ungoverned island for the US and mine it exclusively so long as said island was covered in bird poop. And I have to wonder if anyone's tried to use that as a defense for auto theft. Like, but your honor, the car was empty and covered in bird shit, so clearly it should be fine, right? That law is batshit crazy. There we go. (laughs) Very nice, very nice. (laughs) 
So part of the reason why I wanted to tell these particular stories is that they share this thematic undercurrent of finding something of a measurable value concealed in refuse. Phosphorus, an element fundamental to the correct functioning of our bodies and life as we know it, can be harvested from excrement, decomposing tissues, or the remnants of a former star. And it was first uncovered by searching for gold, the centuries-old epitome of prosperity, and urine, a biological byproduct regarded as useless or unpleasant, unless you're Bear Grylls, I guess. <laughs> but I think this idea <laughs> can be extended to scientific discovery and understanding as well. So to return to the alchemists for a moment, even though they never managed to turn lead into gold, their quest to do so involved forming hypotheses, running experiments, devising new tools and techniques, all practices that we associate with the conduct of science to this day. And even highly regarded scientists from this era forayed into alchemy. Sir Isaac Newton even had his own recipe for the Philosopher's Stone, shown up here, which is in Latin, so admittedly it's mostly useless to me, but in the bottom right, I spotted the phrase in vitro and got very excited because I know <laughs> what that means. And the serendipitous discovery of phosphorus wasn't the only thing that the alchemists got right. They also invented gunpowder, the double boiler, or bon marie, and European-made porcelain. So there's one final element to this story that illustrates this point exceptionally well. I mean illustrates in the most literal sense of the word because it's actually a painting. There it is. Um, but this painting is called The Alchemist, in search of the Philosopher's Stone, discovers phosphorus and prays for the successful conclusion of his operation, as was the custom of the ancient chemical astrologers. So this is by painter Joseph Wright, and it depicts Henning Braun's discovery of phosphorus over a century after its occurrence. And just looking at it, you guys can tell there's a lot to take in here. So there are a lot of anachronistic details in this scene, like the Gothic cathedral-esque room and Henning's robes, which, while appropriate for medieval times, were definitely out of fashion when he was actually doing his research in the 17th century. And all this works together to romanticize his accidental discovery and sort of create an atmosphere of mysticism surrounding it. Now, this painting wasn't popular among Joseph Wright's patrons and was unsold by the time of his death, which suggests to me that the meaning I see here is what they saw as well. Our scientific ancestors approached and sought to understand the natural world through curiosity, reasoning, and dedicated study, just as we still do. And quick as we are to relegate them to the pseudoscientific dustbins of history, there are numerous instances where revisiting their findings through the lens of our present understanding have revealed historic and in some cases even ancient solutions to our modern day problems. And so I think we should look to the illumination of phosphorus, appropriately P in the periodic <laughs> table, as a reminder that in blindly disregarding the scientific merit of our ancestors, we risk leaving ourselves in the dark. Ooh. All right. <laughs> so, does anyone anyone have anything to wrap on phosphorus? I had one thing on just the word phosphorescence, which means kind of to, to glow in the dark. Um, it, it's actually not caused by phosphorus so much. We actually use other elements and molecules like strontium alumate and things that we can use in right. common things. Um, so that they don't, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, obviously, so strontium alumate. Yeah. Uh, just so they don't like burn, mostly. Um, but like, so all the glow-in-the-dark stickers you have are probably like that. And they do have this kind of mystical feel to them. And um, the religious folks of the 50s knew this, and that's why they started painting religious figurines in the 50s in strontium alumate, so they would glow in the dark. Uh, which is a cool idea to kind of get this religious feel, but no one tells you that when you're a child. And I remember getting a statue of St. Anthony when I was a seven-year-old, and my mom put it in my room, and I was trying to fall asleep, and I just turned over, and I just saw this green glowing in the corner. But the other thing I didn't know is that the rods on the side of your eyes are more sensitive than the cones in the middle, and so when I looked at it, it vanished. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I was like, oh, okay. And then I tried to go back to sleep, and it was there again. <laughs> and I spent about 10 minutes realizing that it was a religious statue that was glowing in the dark, not knowing that it was supposed to glow in the dark. And I thought that God was there in the room trying to tell me something like, you're a failure, or whatever they tell Catholic kids. And like... <laughs> It was a really bad night. So did you find yourself like praying out of fear? Because I lost so the myself. figurine was pretty effective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they nailed it, whatever they did. <laughs> oh, oh. Oh. This seems like a great time to go to intermission. All right. So we are halfway through the show. <laughs> All right. We're going to hand the mic to our special guest now, Rich Fizzler. So, Rich, All right. what have you got for us? Thank you. Just um, from a clapping, uh, how many people still have fax machines in their office or their place of work? Oh, all right. So there's still a couple no, you left. don't. Yeah. <laughs> That's a printer. This week I learned that a revolutionary discovery into the nature of atoms led to scientific breakthroughs, medical treatments, and death by suppository. <laughs> Okay, so the radioactivity <laughs> of elements was discovered by the French scientist Henri Becquerel in France in 1896. His primary study, oddly enough, was phosphorescence. So if it glows, it shows. We've got to keep studying <laughs> this stuff. Um, and so I guess in the modern vernacular, I guess in circles, Becquerel's not credited that much uh, for his work. In fact, I, I teach a course, at, uh, a high school course, um, at that students can get credit at UConn for a uh, UConn physics class. And um, we got the final exam from UConn, and they said that our students were responsible for converting to and from Becquerel units. And my <laughs> colleague and I said, what's a Becquerel unit? <laughs> it's not in the book. So we had to you know, come up with that. It wasn't in the book. So anyway, normally we talk about units like Curies, Grays, and Rads and things. Um, we discuss Rankin. We discover Marie Curie, whose work with my element radium I want to discuss here. I just wanted to give a little shout out to Becquerel because he was, he was the original man here. So radium and polonium were discovered by Marie and Pierre Curie in 1898 by extending the work done by Becquerel. Now Marie Curie grew up in Poland, finishing at the top of her high school class at the age of 15. And so she wanted to go to the University of Warsaw, but they didn't allow women students. <laughs> Thank you, there we go. All right, all right. So she had to learn informally as part of the flying or floating university. So she moved to Paris in 1891 where she could officially enroll at the University of Paris. Um, so it's interesting, right? Here's this woman in the late 1800s, early 1900s, working on revolutionary discoveries in a male-dominated discipline. I can't imagine the challenges she went through, but uh, whatever genes she had translated to the rest of her family. We'll get to in a little bit. So uh, her work on characterizing the emission from uranium became one of the founding principles of atomic physics. And her work in studying spontaneous radioactivity led to her sharing her first Nobel Prize in physics in 1903 with her husband Pierre and with Becquerel. After her husband died from the proverbial horse cart accident, um, she took over his post and became the first female professor at the Sorbonne. Um, one of the more interesting facts about her life and work uh, was developing applications for radioactivity and, and radiation was the development and progression of portable x-ray machines used in World War I named Little Curies. I just want to say something here because Little Curies were amazing and everybody knows about Marie Curie because she was a brilliant scientist uh, not a lot of people know that Marie Curie is credited with saving up to a million lives in World War One 
And the way she did this was by basically just trying to find some way to be useful on the front lines of World War One. And she raised a lot of money. She got families to donate their cars, basically tricked them out, made the first ever portable x-ray machines, and were able to take them out to the front lines at a time when most soldiers who got hit with shrapnel or a bullet or anything were dying on the trip back to the hospital. And so some estimates say that she saved uh, as high as a million lives. But one of the other things, as you mentioned, was her daughter, uh, did you say Aren? I, I just said that she had great family genes. Right, so her daughter, Aren Curie, yeah. who was basically 17 years old, on the front lines in these things with her mother, operating this um, like incredibly high tech for the time, uh, like medical equipment. And they would go around showing different people how to, uh, how to use it. And uh, on one occasion, by the way, Irene Curie later won a Nobel Prize as well. Um, so this, this family, the Curie family, extended family, has the most Nobel Prizes at five of any of them. And the other sister in that family, her husband won a Nobel Prize, but it was just the Nobel Peace Prize, so it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but but Irene Curie was an absolute genius. And there's this amazing story about where she's showing some like stuffy old like army, French army surgeon, uh, like doing these like amazing geometric calculations from the like x-ray spectra and she's basically doing this to show how deep in the wound the bullet is so that the surgeon can go get it and she's trying to explain this and the surgeon's basically just like whatever lady stab 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 um and he couldn't find it and so he had to come back to her and just be like um where did you say that was again (laughs) wait so you're telling me a man refused to ask for directions (laughs) adds up we so after Marie and Pierre first discovered radioactive elements, polonium and radium, Marie continued to investigate their properties. In 1910, she successfully isolated radium as a pure metal, which proved that a new element's existence. She also documented the properties of radioactive elements and their compounds. She demonstrated that radon, an element that is part of the decay chain of radium, can be used to kill cancer cells. So the study of radium and characterizing its radioactive decay has led to everything from the atomic bomb to nuclear power to medical treatments. The Curie is a unit used to describe the activity of a radioactive substance. It's based on the decay of radium-226. And so I just use the word decay. Um, radium decays or changes into lead and carbon or into another form of radium and an alpha particle or helium. So I've mentioned you know, radioactive particles are not stable and they decay. But <laughs> generally, as an element decays, it releases radiation and forms other atoms and releases energy of various forms. Radiation is released during the decay process in the form of alpha particles, which are like helium nuclei, beta particles, and gamma radiation. So alpha particles can travel only a short distance and can't really penetrate the human skin, but they're they're dangerous if the radiation starts in your body, like if you ingest it or inhale it. Uh, Beta particles are generally absorbed in the skin, don't pass through the body. Gamma radiation is the real bad stuff, right? So that's the kind of harmful radiation we hear about. Um, many of the radioactive decay products are unstable and become new elements and new elements and other elements and other elements until they become a stable element, something like lead. All right, so back to so radium. I, can I just jump in? Because I, yeah. I had a PI who uh, was studying a radioisotope once, or he wanted to. Um, it was a phosphorus element. I worked in orthopedics, so it was in bone integration. He wanted to see how uh, phosphorus got into bones, and he was like, oh, I'm going to yeah, do phosphorus. this study yeah. to see what <laughs> happens in, ner- in, in the knees of the horse model, um, because horses have very humanish bones. And he was like, I'm going to use uh, an isotope of phosphorus to track how that gets integrated. And he like wrote a grant, and it was like, oh, great. And everyone liked it. And then somebody was like, how are you going to pay for this? And he was like, oh, it's all like the grant, fine. And they said, no, you realize you have to pay for radioactive waste by the pound, and you have 40 horses in your study. <laughs> <laughs> and so that never happened. He did it in mice. So, so, when <laughs> <laughs> so when they asked the funding agency if they would fund it, they said, nay. Uh, <laughs> I'm a couple beers in now. I'm finally going to be on this Welcome game. Aboard. <laughs> Welcome aboard. 
back to radium. Um, <laughs> also, radium was not created in the Big Bang or in successive nova and supernova in the nucleosynthesis process. Radium is not considered a primordial element, but it's a product of the decay of thorium or uranium. Um, applications of radium-223 directly attributed to Curie's work include cancer treatment. It's sometimes used to treat prostate cancer that has spread to the bones because bones contain calcium and radium is in the same group or column as calcium. Go Mendeleev again, right? So we're going back to the periodic table. And so it can be used to target cancer in bone. The bone takes up the radium and then gives off its alpha particle killing the neighboring cells, so that's really cool. So what else can be done with the energy that comes off the decay? Yeah, it sounds like they use radium in everything but the kitchen zinc. Okay, uh, <laughs> 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 sorry. All right. <laughs> I'm done. Jeez, I hope... Let's throw Rob off stage and bury him. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. I hope, the I hope these element jokes are gone. <laughs> All right. Um, so what else can we do with this energy? No. I was going to do the barium one, so okay. <laughs> Yes. Okay, radium can be used in luminous paints, so like in clock and watch dials. And so that's what they used in the early 1900s. Radium and copper-doped do zinc sulfide was used to paint watch faces and instrument dials, giving a greenish glow. So these glowing paints were all the rage, and they're beautiful, right? And that's really great. So they hired these women to work in these factories, and they would take their paintbrush and dip it in and and paint the dial and then lick their tongue and paint the dial and lick their tongue and paint the dial and lick their tongue, lick, lick the, not lick their tongue, lick the paintbrush. <laughs> you weren't stopping me. Didn't yeah, even catch right. that. How do you lick your tongue? All right, well, that's another story for another podcast. Um, so they were licking the paintbrush to make a point. Maybe they should have used those, ni those nibs for those pen nibs. But yeah. <laughs> it would have solved all the better. problems. So they were getting radium in their mouth all the time. And so they got really sick. They got tumors. They had were dying, and um, so these women um, were called the radium girls in the 20s. Um, by wetting the tip of a paintbrush, they got, they got very sick, and, and they wanted the company to pay for their health care. They wanted the company to stop doing this. They wanted restitution. But the company, being as they are, hired their own scientists to say, that's not really true. That's not really happening. And I don't think the company scientists wanted to do the job. But they just discredited their claims that the radium made them sick. But the women's labor network kept pushing and kept pushing and kept pushing. And eventually they did win a settlement. Eventually they got some money. And they laid the groundwork um, for the laws we have today for OSHA to protect workers. It was really one of the first collective actions, I think, that we had um, in protecting workers. So that was a really great um, output from this. <laughs> but I, I heard someone in the back say, what about suppositories? So let's talk about <laughs> that because that's really interesting. So when we, ha when we discovered this radium and it was glowing and it was really great, we must make money off of it. So we put it in water and we have people drink it because it's got to be good for us, right? And uh, there was a guy named Alfred Curie, no relation to Marie Curie, but definitely worked off his name and made everything toothpaste. Um, this is a great quote from a toothpaste ad. Its radioactivity increases the defenses of teeth and gums. The cells are loaded <laughs> with new life energy. The bacta bacteria are hindered in their destroying effect. This explains the excellent prophylaxis and healing process with gingival diseases. It polishes the dental enamel so it turns white and shiny. Should be applied sparingly. All right. <laughs> white, then, shiny, and glow in the yeah. dark. <laughs> then they had this great appliance where you just wore a belt of radioactive material around your back to cure everything. Neuritis, rheumatism, high blood pressure, constipation, asthma, heart, liver, and kidney trouble. Sold on trial only. So that was the disclaimer at the bottom of that one. Hay fever discomforts are unnecessary. They can be relieved with radium solution for hay fever. Anti-aging, restore your hair. 
And uh, my personal favorite, well, figuratively my personal favorite, <laughs> what's the best way to get something into your system? Not in the blood, not by eating, but by suppositories, that's yeah. right. Hey. Um, <laughs> Vita radium suppositories absorb through the wall directly to the colon. <laughs> and, in, and in a year, you've got a semicolon. <laughs> so every... <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> every tissue, every organ is bombarded with health-giving electric atoms. These suppositories have an effect on the human body like recharging an electric battery. Guaranteed to be non-injurious, perfectly safe for any use. So here we have people marketing something that they don't know much about to make some money or they put their press out there based on science that they know nothing about. Jenny McCarthy. So <laughs> uh, um, we can take some real lessons. Uh, hashtag measles vaccine. That's right. All right. So let me let me uh, let me allow time for that applause break because that definitely deserves one. <laughs> but I I cannot pass up an attempt to jump on suppositories. Um, okay. So I oh. want to say. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, there is no element that people have not tried to put up their butt, or tried to put in the other direction so that things will come out their butt. And, and there's two really great examples of elemental laxatives from history that I, I love is strong. But um, ba basically, the first one is antimony, which the Victorians uh, in England used. Uh, basically, antimony is just a, a poison, but they would have these little pills of it, and they would swallow it, and the stomach acid would strip off like a tiny amount of antimony, um, and then that would just irritate the lining of your stomach, and if you were ever, you know, we had some intestinal issue that was stopping you from pooping, it would fix that. Um, <laughs> so what they would do then is rummage through their leavings and they would get the pill out, wash it off, and they would use it again and again. And these were actually family heirlooms. They were passed down from generation to generation. They were and passed they down? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and God. guys, my favorite is uh, Lewis and Clark were sent on their expedition with uh, mercury-based laxative. Uh, and they, they were sold under the trade name as Dr. Rush's Bilious Pills. God. And Dr. Rush, first, well, let me also say that they're known as thunderclappers, colloquially. So Sorry for that no, part. We've got to get to the bottom of this fact. So, okay, so radium, radium has a really long half-life, about 1,600 years. So all the, the books, everything that Marie Curie worked on, you know, is still too harmful to handle. Um, the watch faces and hands are still a health hazard now. It's interesting that it took until the 1960s for radium paint to stop being used. So it was a really long time after they found out this stuff was bad. Um, not all radioactive materials are bad. We have uses today. Um, uh, americium is used in smoke detectors. We tag molecules to be used in PET scanning to track biological processes or locate tumors. Carbon dating is a radioactive uh, application of looking at radioactive carbon. So. Go radiation, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! That's all I got. Okay. Anything else? I have a quick one that I've been basically keeping this fact in my back pocket since probably before the podcast started. Like, this <laughs> is the fact that, you know how, like, you'll get drunk and you'll text people regrettable things. I text people this fact because that's just who I am as a person. 
So, Rich, you mentioned the idea of other sources of radiation that are useful to us and not necessarily harmful. And one source of non-harmful background radiation that we encounter is the isotope potassium-40, which can be found in everybody's favorite potassium-rich fruit, bananas. So this has led to the development of uh, sort of a unit of measurement called the banana equivalent dose, or BED for short. And it's an informal measurement of ionizing radiation that's equal to 0.1 microsieverts or 1% of your daily average exposure to radiation or the exposure that you get from eating a single banana. And it was developed as part of a public outreach campaign by this waste cleanup company called RadSafe to educate the public on the relative risks of different sources of radiation. So, in the spirit of its invention, to put some radiation sources into perspective, and by perspective, I of course mean bananas. <laughs> Sleeping next to someone exposes you to half a banana's worth of radiation, which I have to say is a great fact if you ever need an out-of-the-box pickup line, like, hey girl. <laughs> How about you come back to my place? I got a half banana's worth of radiation, but a full banana elsewhere, if you know what I mean. <laughs> come on, yeah, yeah. That's right, that's right, that's right. Flying from New York to LA is an equivalent dose of 400 bananas, which, given that the average banana weighs 0.4 pounds, would come to about 160 pounds of bananas, which is the equivalent of four 40-pound carry-on bags. Coincidentally, 160 pounds is the maximum recommended carry-on weight for Spirit, the only airline that probably <laughs> wouldn't blink an eye as you lug four bags bursting at the seam with bananas aboard one of their airplanes. That's a, that's, that's a bunch of luggage. Hey, <laughs> nice. Uh, a typical background dose uh, annually of radiation, about 85% of which comes from natural sources and the rest from medical scans, is about 36,000 bananas, so we're hitting the big leagues now. And lastly, spending 10 minutes next to the Chernobyl reactor uh, after its explosion is the same as consuming, are you ready for this? 500 million bananas. <laughs> <laughs> that, that shit bananas. <laughs> Just saying. So, right. I should note a very necessary caveat hey. that <laughs> you don't accumulate uh, more and more radiation every time you eat a banana. Um, because of metabolic equilibrium, so long as your kidneys are functioning properly, you'll excrete that banana equivalent dose. Also because of fiber. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> or bilious pills. Yeah. Uh, within a few hours of consumption. However, I should note that consuming 400 bananas at once would kill you. Still not from radiation, but rather from a lethal overdose of potassium. But then again, a single banana could also kill you, if expertly wielded. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's put, a, let's put that into this. <laughs> Quite the appealing fact, too. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right. So Fax Machine listeners know that there's only one thing left to do now, and that's the quiz. Um, you've all seen it. I'm going to give the hosts the quiz and see if they can do as well as you. So our first question. Selenium was named after Selene, the Greek god of the moon. Mercury is the first planet in our solar system. And for you guys, we've already talked about phosphorus and its name the, uh, from the planet Venus. Of all the remaining celestial bodies that share a name uh, or a root with an element, which is the closest to the Earth? Okay. So I'm just randomly. So Neptunium's one. Yeah, and yeah. then uranium and plutonium, but those yeah. are really, but those really, are far really far, far away. <laughs> but close to my heart. There's also uh, there's also cerium because Ceres is a dwarf planet, but I think that's someone out there knew that too. Somebody yeah. out there, good for you. <laughs> um, but I think I don't know if you guys know the answer, but I think the answer might be tellurium, 
because uh, tellurium comes oh, from okay. the word. Uh, it's basically like you know where like terra comes from in like Latin or Greek. Which, mm-hmm. which one is Latin, that? Yeah. Latin. That okay. tella just also was a word for Earth. I don't count Earth because not celestial. I'm gonna say you have about five seconds to okay. pick an answer. Yeah, right. so cerium. Cerium. You just said sure. Okay. All right. So it is not tellurium. That's a good trap answer, but um, it's not what I asked. Um, what I'm actually looking for in the mid 1800s, scientists looked through a spectroscope at the sun, no. and they detected no. a new band that they had never seen before in the emission spectrum because of helium, helium. and helios, oh. the sun. So the audience, the audience, we learned earlier about Venus. So if you put Venus for that answer, that's good. But uh, unless you put the sun, otherwise it's no go. So. All right. Yeah. Okay. I thought that was a pretty good Greek okay. mythology. I liked it. I liked yeah. it. Etymology it. answer. All right. Uh, question number two. Methylmercaptan is a chemical placed in gas lines. So if there's a leak, humans can quickly detect it and report the issue. What element makes methylmercaptan so detectable? Sulfur. Yeah. It sulfur? smells. That, that it, would make sense. It sure do. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely <laughs> odiferous. That's correct. So that's sulfur. Yeah. Sulfur. yeah. yeah. So sulfur is so a smelly <laughs> element. So um, we've got one right, sulfur. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay. mercaptan is a cool word. Uh, in labs, beta mercaptoethanol. I think all the scientists are yeah, kind of. That yeah, you terrible. know that smell. Um, so, <laughs> mercapto actually comes from uh, mercury capturing or mercurium captans, which means how, uh, describes how sulfur containing thiol groups actually bind up mercury. So, they're good metal chelators. Question number three Dmitry Mendeleev felt strongly that each element was unique and atomic or indivisible. The discovery of what in the 1890s challenged this idea, indicating that they had at least some shared component. I don't know. Tricky. I, no I think idea. we gotta throw this one to the audience. <laughs> I am stuck. Can we can we get an assist Unless here? Yeah. What do you think, <laughs> you audience? Oh, I hear protons. What else? Or electrons? Yeah. Okay. Electrons they were do. discovered they first. Do. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Nice job, room. Um, so Mendeleev hated the idea of subatomic particles because subatomic was not a thing to Mendeleev. Uh, he wrote a paper, an attempt towards a chemical conception of the ether, in which he took all the data describing electrons, and he was like, uh, no, that's ether. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, that, you didn't understand that. Um, here's Newton, Newtonian mechanics and ether, and you're wrong. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he was obviously later disproven. Um, oh, okay, I just because this is a periodic table show and we have not talked about Mendeleev that much at all. I just want to briefly say that Mendeleev has some hilarious theories that we don't have time to go into. He also, um, as you mentioned, was an anarchist, uh, and this made, him yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a couple people screaming about anarchy all at the same time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but basically, so there was this interesting story where, where he was married and he wanted to divorce his wife and marry someone else, but the Russian Orthodox Church didn't want to let him. And so a priest basically said, okay, now that you've done this, you are officially a bigamist. He was like, don't care. And so that <laughs> priest went to the czar and the czar said the best quote about Mendeleev. Mendeleev may have two wives, but I only have one Mendeleev. Ooh, and he wow. defrocked the priest, <laughs> which is so brutal. <laughs> anyway, that's my Mendeleev moment. Wow. <laughs> All right, uh, question number four. In 1906, the humorist Gillette Burgess wrote a book on personality titled Are You a Blank? The Sulfitic Theory, where blank is a salt of a common halogen. Um, that ion came to mean a sedate, dull person who said boring things. What is the halogen? That's probably bromide. <laughs> <laughs> 
Bromide. So bromine yeah. is the element, bromide. Uh, what's interesting, he advertised this book here. Um, yes, this is a blurb. And actually, <laughs> this book is where the word blurb comes from. Oh. Yeah. And Good fact. The yeah, right? And this is Miss Belinda Blurb, if you can see it, <laughs> in the act of blurbing. <laughs> Look how big her mouth is. <laughs> This is just absolutely amazing. Oh my god! <laughs> it's like some Joker level. Like, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> but this is how he published this book about how bromides are boring and sulfides are exciting. He also he also wrote this poem. And I don't know if you've ever heard the purple cow reflections on a mythic beast who's quite remarkable, at least. It's just, just the title. That's it? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, that's the title. Yeah. Okay. It's, I never saw a purple cow. I hope I never see one. Okay, everyone say it. But if I can tell you here and now, I'd rather see than be one. Nice. Woo! Everyone was a bit optimistic there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just to be fair, one person in the audience knew it, and she gets all the extra points. Thank you. It was just one. All of them. <laughs> all right. So question number five. Uh, according to a 2011 David Guetta song, what element is bulletproof? <laughs> that, that so does not help me. No. Uh, <laughs> not to be confused with the LaRue song, Bulletproof. That's what, okay, that's what was in my head. And <laughs> not the song that's like, radioactive, radioactive. <laughs> it's not that one, right? No. No, no idea. Bulletproof. No bulletproof. Idea. Pick something. Nothing to lose. Can't be lead. Fire away. Titanium. Fire. Yeah! Oh, what? Oh. what? <laughs> no, I know it. Yeah. Woo! Okay. <laughs> ricochet. Woo! Take a rip. <laughs> What's also really interesting is that the abbreviation for this element is also a rapper's name. T.I.? T.I. Nice. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Somebody beat me to it in the back yeah. of the audience. Rapper, Texas Instruments, you know. It's that guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, question number six. Which element, which shares an abbreviation with the United States abbreviation, uh, is named after a silver-snatching goblin from Germany and is a color used in porcelain plates. Wait, it what? shares its name with a state's abbreviation? Yeah, so its abbreviation okay. is also a state abbreviation. Cobalt. Yeah. That's Definitely. Cobalt, yeah, <laughs> cobalt blue. Nice. Look at that. All right, so, so in Germany in ye olden days, they used to mine silver, uh, and when the mines went cold and other kind of silver-looking metals were found, the locals blamed goblins called cobalt and nickel. <laughs> oh, was that right? Oh. Can I can I just off knuckle real quick? Yeah. Do you guys know what? Uh, well, now you're gonna kind of know it. The bread pumpernickel. It means devil fart. <laughs> <laughs> or or goblin fart. Yeah. And that's like actually what yeah. it means. Yeah. <laughs> oh that's all I had. <laughs> all right. That's all you need. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even gonna read this after that. <laughs> But yeah, mi miners used to get mad because there was no silver, and then there was um, cobalt uh, arsenic and arsenic cobalt compounds, and they died, and they were like, cobalt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and, and the state was Colorado. So there nice. you go. Okay. Right. Question number seven. I like this question a lot. I think you guys are going to get it. Name all the New York City subway lines whose elemental abbreviations are also like are the same. So subway lines whose letters are elemental abbreviations. Boron. Carbon. B, C. Fluorine. F. Yep. Hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Is H right? Uh, is there no H line? Nitrogen. H. No. Nitrogen. I live seven blocks away from my work. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't take your subway. Ni right. <laughs> nitrogen nitrogen for the end. Yeah. <laughs> One. 
Um, tungsten, the tungsten no line. Tungsten w line. line. Yeah. Wait, what, what audience, do you guys have any more? Yeah. There is a W line. There is line. a tungsten yeah. line, really? There is a W line. Go to Woo. Queens, bro. Where does it go? <laughs> oh. oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> do you guys, audience, do you know any more? Yes. Gotta get Soul the shuttle, line. yeah. Oh. Right. That one right. stinks. Yeah. So nice shot. O- audience nice. did very well on this oh, one. audience, yeah. And this is uh, number eight now, right? Okay, so eight elements are actually named after a part or all of Scandinavia. Five of them are named specifically after Sweden, but there are two countries after Sweden that have three elements named after a part or all of the country. Name either country. France, I would say, is one. Yeah, France okay. is one. Americium, probably. Yeah. Yeah, like California, Berkeleyum, Tennesseeum. Mm-hmm. So weirdly, Americium um, is actually named after the Americas, but I can see that. So America uh, and France are the two answers. Right. Okay. okay. Cool. And so that's it cool, for cool. our quiz. Um, we really couldn't do a periodic table show without a great cast like this, without a lot of great research. But mostly, uh, we'd be remiss to talk about the periodic table without at least attempting. Attempting. Tom Lear's periodic table song. <laughs> and so <laughs> we're going to give it a shot. But shout out to the crowd. You guys are awesome. Um, so what um, element is named after convicts that tell jokes? A silly convict. Come on, let's go. <laughs> Try to keep up. No? Yes. yes. All right, so, okay. so we always talk about uh, in mm-hmm. biology class that, um, how does that go again? Oh, helium and curium and barium are the elements of life. Do you know why? That's right. You can't heal him, you can't <laughs> cure him, you bury him. That's right. All right. Okay, so we're going to try Tom Lehrer's element song. Does anyone else know this besides me? Do you know who Tom Lehrer is? Tom Lehrer is, this, uh, he's still alive, but he gave up uh, writing really weird songs like Poisoning Pigeons in the Park and inappropriate songs about, oh, the bomb and the South and things like that and the church um, <laughs> because, I don't know, he said he was nothing else to sing about, so he became a school teacher. And <laughs> That's so why he I ended I his career on a high note? He did. Ooh. He did. I um, <laughs> became a school teacher because my kids left home and I needed something else to do. Oh. <laughs> and it was either that or face my emotions with my wife. So I didn't know. <laughs> so let's see if we can do this. But she's going to so hear this too. That's okay. <laughs> she, she knows. She knows. <laughs> All right. So let's see if we can do this. Never before done anywhere. Here we go. Let's see if we can do this. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium. Nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium. Europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium. Lanthanum, and osmium, and acetine, and radium, and gold, and protactinium, and indium, and gallium. <gasps> and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. <laughs> Following along. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium. Strontium and silicon and silver and samarium and bismuth, chromium, lithium, beryllium and barium. You taking notes? There's another quiz coming up. (laughs) There's holmium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and fluorine and francium and terbium and mercury and manganese and lithium and magnesium dysprotium, scandium and cerium and cesium, lead and brittium and platinum and plutonium, palladium, promethium, potassium, polonium, tantalum, tectesium, titanium, tellurium, and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, brachelium, and also mendelevium, and einsteinium, nobelium. Here's a big one. And argon, krypton, neon, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, and sodium. Now, this was 1959, so we also said, these are the only ones from if the news has come to Harvard. There may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. 
So, Rich, as you mentioned, that that song is 50 years old. That song's 50 years old. It, and it's a classic, but but we've got we've got 16 more elements. <laughs> oh. oh. Here it comes, the forgotten 16. Y'all ready? Mitnerium, Seaborgium, Emborium. Am I boring ya? Lorenzium, Ronginium, like the X-ray guy. Know what I mean, Ium? What? like the Harry Potter school? No, that's Dermstrang. Don't be dubnium, fool. 10 out of 10 for 117, cause you're the only 10 I've seen. Okay. Lorenzium, Refortium, you want more of them? I got more of them. We're getting close, this rap is classic. Let's finish it off with something massive. Hassium, Nahonium, Florovium, and Muscovium. Thanks for sitting through this lesson. Don't forget the last one, Agonessa. Nice. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for coming to Fact Machine Trivia's first ever live show. We are so happy that you guys made it out here to be able to do this. Thank you to Caveat for hosting us tonight. We have. A special thanks to our guest, Rich Fizzler. Our musical guest, Rich Fizzler. Thank you for coming. Thank you to Caveat. Thank you very much. We are good to go. This episode of Fax Machine was recorded in front of a live audience at Caveat in New York City. Check out Fax Machine on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. Fax Machine is hosted and written by Rob Frawley, Noah Giverson, and Emily Costa, and edited by Noah Giverson. Production and theme music are by AC Antonelli, and our logo is designed by Mike Zola. Thank you for listening, and tune in again next time.